You just couldn't resist the temptation to come after me, could you, Captain? I'd like to finish what I start. Well, I'm afraid you're going to be disappointed. Again, you won't get me, Captain. But I do have a consolation prize for you. Actually, it's more of a gift. Incoming transmission? Sending over a document? It's a book. One of my favorites. Les Miserables. Thank you, but I've read it. Recently? If not, you should read it again. Pay close attention to the character of Inspector Javert, the French policeman who spends 20 years chasing a man for stealing a loaf of bread. Sound like anyone you know? Why don't you beam over and we'll discuss it? It's a tempting offer, but I have other plans. Enjoy the book. Music, politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm Elliot, your resident Trek nerd, and do you hear the people sing? And I'm Elizabeth, student of humanoid psychology, singing the song of angry men. It is the music of our bi-weekly mission to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise, to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. This week, Elizabeth and I continue our deep dive into the Maquis with a character spotlight on Michael Eddington, the self-styled Jean Valjean to Ben Sisko's Javert. Our first story must be For the Cause from DS9's fourth season. It was written by Ronald D. Moore, directed by Mark Jared O'Connell, and aired in 1996. Commander Eddington lays out the stakes during the morning briefing. The crew's imperative is to dissuade a likely Maquis raid on a shipment of industrial replicators from the Federation to the Cardassian Empire, reeling in the wake of the war with the Klingons. Privately, he and Odo also inform Ben Sisko that they suspect his girlfriend, with whom we establish she is currently in the boinking phase, of being a Maquis agent. That's right, you did say that. Captain, I realize this is an awkward situation for you, but if I could step up my surveillance of Captain Yates. She's a Federation citizen. You can't just invade her privacy based on your suspicions. If she's really a Marquis, then she's no longer a Federation citizen. There are times we have to search vessels docked at the station. If you can find a reason. Before long, Sisko is stepping in to stop Odo from covertly inspecting Cassidy's cargo over Commander Eddington's objections. He does, however, order the Defiant to follow her ship and monitor for terrorist activity. And when you know it, it turns out Cassidy is indeed smuggling cargo to the Maquis. When she returns to the station, Ben plays it cool in order to entrap her on her next run that same evening. At Eddington's prompting, Ben agrees to command the Defiant in its pursuit of his girlfriend, but not before trying to convince her to abandon her run altogether. Neither of us is doing anything so important that it can't wait for a few days. I'm not sure the Tholians would agree. Tell the Tholians they won't be getting this shipment at all. I don't think I can do that, Ben. I, I, I have a commitment to fulfill. There's another plot here, thanks to the studio executives wanting to discourage the Bashir Garrick slash fiction, wherein Garrick begins a friendship, for now, with Dukat's daughter, Zial, who's now living on DS9. They agree to a date at a Cardassian sauna, but Kira steps in to try and put a stop to it. Bless her. 
Cloaked, the Defiant watches Cassidy's ship for hours until it occurs to Odo that the whole point of this run was to lure him and Sisko away from DS9. And so, Ben breaks his cover and beams over to get some answers. Cassidy doesn't really have any, but they finally piece it together. Eddington is himself a Mackie agent and has orchestrated these events in order to steal those industrial replicators. He stuns Kira, assumes command, and departs with the technology before the Defiant can return. Embarrassed, Sisko is treated to one final blow to his ego this week. Eddington calls to make specious political arguments, and Sisko is there to make it personal, establishing the men's dynamic moving forward. In the final scene, Cassidy returns to DS9 alone to allow herself to be arrested and to prove her commitment to Ben, despite her political follies. Elizabeth, I don't know if you've done any couples counseling just yet, um, but I would be curious to know if um, Ben and Cassidy, presumably after she's out of prison, came to you for some um, <laughs> for some advice here. You know, it, it occurs. I wish to more couples, like you know, where one's coming out of prison went to couples therapy. That would make <laughs> things so great. That would be great. Hmm. That would be great. There we go. There's the e stuff for this week. Um, you know. Uh, it occurs to me, like, people have their secrets. That's, I guess that's true. Or they're, we probably would call them just sort of private thoughts. Um, so the, the issue here, obviously, with their relationship is that we establish in the show that they're becoming more intimate, that it go, the, the camera is deliberate in saying they are definitely sleeping together. This relationship is going to the next phase. You're not making this easy. That's the general idea. Mm. You are evil. I am a Starfleet officer, the paragon of virtue. You're more like a parody of virtue. And at the same time, we learn that Cassie's been lying to Ben. Um, but she's been lying for, at least within her own moral framework, good reasons. And mm -hmm. I suspect she would say that what she was lying about wasn't directly related to her relationship with Ben. I think that's on the fair side of things, but it's still, you know, she's lying to him and that doesn't really help people be intimate with each other. You're right. She's not lying like about their relationship, but she's also not telling him what's going on specifically because of who he is and what his job is. So, you know, like yeah. I think there's, there is that rub right there. You know, if she was dating somebody else, she might've let, the, let them in on it, you know? Um, well, okay. So in the hypothetical situation that they've come in for couples counseling and they're trying to figure out whether or not they want to stay together, like let's just assume that premise. Um, the first thing you would want to do is, you know, you want to establish a rapport with the couple so that they trust you. You also want them to remember the good part about their relationship because most people come into couples counseling like with an issue, you know, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so you want to be like, how did you guys meet? What do you like about each other? What made you guys fall in love? You know, like that, that's, you know, you want to kind of fill the well of like the good memories and intentions there and then figure out what the goal is for couples therapy, which might change, you know, and, and then once you kind of establish that baseline, then it really gets into questions of values and like what is it that each person is wanting both like what their goals for couples therapy is and also what their goals for the relationship are almost more so for me than the question about like lying is you know their difference in moral attitudes about this issue mm -hmm. you know Cassidy really sympathized with the Mar Maki and Ben Benjamin 
was on the complete opposite end of that spectrum. You know, it could, you know, maybe the equivalent of like a Democrat and a Republican trying to get married. And it's <laughs> like, you voted for Trump? Really? Like that could be, you know, I'm just trying to think of like a, sure. a, a very like, what's that dichotomous um, issue here, you know? Yeah. A- and then, then for me, the question is, okay, Ben, you know, for example, do you need Cassidy to agree with you? You know, is is sameness and agreement on this issue so important to you that the like that it is a deal breaker for the relationship, whether or not she agrees with you? That can both be a cultural thing, but also like a, and a value thing. Like people have very different ideas about what it means to be in a romantic relationship. You know, I remember, you know, in um for my own relationship, thinking that something was romantic when it was actually slightly dysfunctional. You know, it's like, oh, but isn't that what it means to be with somebody? And you have to kind of unlearn these like unhealthy ideas about what it means to be with somebody. And and so to me, I think that's the that would be the my initial hypothesis for going into couples therapy with them gotcha. is like, can you guys disagree on this? Does it do you guys have to agree on this? Do you have to be the same? Do you have to be a united front on this issue? Or is there room for you to be separate people with your separate opinions? And is can that be tolerated yeah. at the bare minimum versus celebrated in the ideal situation? I think that's very wise. Um, I would say in this particular situation, you know, Ben's attitude toward the Maquis in general, I think like his personal opinion is actually pretty vague in the series slash maybe he's agnostic or even you know and we looked at this last time um in the episode called the maquis he sympathizes to an extent you know with his friend cal hudson and like seeing that specious argument about earth being a paradise and all that stuff do you know what the trouble is no the trouble is earth really on earth there is no poverty no crime no war it's more that his job is as a starfleet officer is to Track them down and arrest them when, when he can. Um, what I what I wonder about because what, you know Cisco continues a relationship with Michael Eddington and with the Maquis moving forward, obviously uh, in the series after this, and he continues his relationship with Cassidy, but the two yeah. don't ever intersect again. Like it's never brought up between Cisco mm. and Cassidy. Like, hey, remember when you lied to me? <laughs> hey, remember when you were working with the people I was? You know, it's like I'm not saying that. I like them as a couple and I think they're good for each other and I don't think they shouldn't have gotten together because of this. It's just, I would have liked to have seen some sort of atonement or reconciliation yeah. over that issue of just the dishonesty, not so much the underlying disagreement that might be there. Yeah, no, that's fair. You know, like on the one hand, you can hope that that happened off screen. Yeah. Um, and on the other hand, oh, couples not talking about a hot button issue and avoiding it for the sake of co- like avoiding conflict. Ooh, that, you know. Ooh. Ooh, ooh, that's. Um, we should make a note of that because I would love to come to, back to that in some lit future episode. Because, um, ouch. What conflict avoid? <laughs> conflict avoidance. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, prime directive within the uh, within human relationships. I think that's there's, there's something there. <laughs> A um, couple other small observations before we get to the, the meet with Michael Eddington. Um, the first is, <laughs> you remember our first episode um, on in this, what's it called? A pentology? There's five episodes that we're doing um, on the Maquis. The first one we talked about, the first DS9 episode we talked about was Shakar with um, 
yeah. uh, Win, you know, crazy theocratic dictator Win, and uh, the person called Jakar and Kira in the middle of all this. And one of mm-hmm. the, the cruxes of the issue there was this uh, farming issue on Bajor where they didn't have the technology to... Um, enough of these these available devices to make the soil fertile again whatever and reclamators reclamators thank you and i pointed out how hey there are fucking replicators in this universe why are they not just making food out of thin air and here we have the federation giving these industrial replicators to cardassia it's like they didn't have one or two that they could give to bajor and avoid this civil war that almost happened it's just just a funny little observation with the continuity here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember that they make some kind of like argument for why Cardassia got so many reclamators. For- with all due respect, Bajor is just one planet. The Klingons have destroyed the industrial base of literally dozens of Cardassian worlds. With 12 CFI replicators, they can at least start building new power plants and factories. It still doesn't sit well, you know. Well, it certainly it certainly bolsters the Maquis argument in that, like, mm-hmm. hey, Bajor's an ally. Cardassia was a recent enemy, and they're Nazis. <laughs> so why are we <laughs> prioritizing their well-being along with the treaty? Why are we giving them anything when they're the bad guys? But you do remember what we did to Germany after World War One, which was not giving them resources, which is what created the Nazis in World War Two. So, ah, yeah. can we? Tr- <laughs> No, no, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I They're like your, very simplified, well very yeah. simplified world history right there, Earth world history. Um, but I don't know. I I hear you. It's murky. It's frustrating. Like there's this sense of injustice and um, unfairness. Yeah. You know, especially if you're not Cardassian. You know, exactly. I, I I can get that. And and I think it touches on this larger issue, which I think we're kind of touching on with this whole Maki miniseries. Um, you know, five part miniseries. I already forgot the word you used, but. It's this sense of how do people interact with each other and do they interact in an ideal way or do they interact in these kind of like ways that are based on wounds that haven't healed? Hmm. I think some of the big challenges that we're seeing in, in with the Maquis right now and also just with the world in general is there could be this like quote unquote ideal way that people interact with each other, you know, that, you know, in a non-violent way for example and like non-violent communication is one arena in which like defines what is emotional and verbal violence what exactly is violence and like how can you communicate and interact with other people in a way that doesn't that is in a non-violent way you know Mm -hmm. but that i think requires like not everybody operates at that level and when they don't it's really tough you know it's i heard this example recently of some there was some you know medieval war and you know there were two armies and they were all in a field and both archer and, you know every archer like you know pulled their bow and then they just started firing at each other in the field and the last you know the army that had the last man standing won you know that's very noble, kind of being like out in the open, allowing yourself to get shot by an arrow. But some people who survived hid and ran behind a tree, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think, I think that there's this idea that, I, that I've been noticing in like my own reflections with the Maquis and this miniseries is that 
we want to have this posture where we're open and available and like vulnerable to being hurt and trusting that the other person won't do that. But when they do, like, do you just maintain that ideal posture or do you adapt to get through whatever situation you're in, you know? And I feel like all this stuff are like maladaptations to violent interactions and like your people are doing the best they can to survive, which is falling short of this ideal. Can we all be vulnerable in this together and not kill each other? And that's really, really hard to get to. But for me, I notice that's where I want to aim for. And a lot of my dissonance is coming from realizing that that position puts me more at risk with certain people. Open your eyes, Captain. Why is the Federation so obsessed with the Maquis? We've never harmed you, and yet we're constantly arrested and charged with terrorism. Why? Because we've left the Federation, and that's the one thing you can't accept. Nobody leaves Paradise. Everyone should want to be in the Federation. Hell, you even want the Cardassians to join. You're only sending them replicators because one day they can take their rightful place on the Federation Council. You know, in some ways, you're even worse than the Borg. At least they tell you about their plans for assimilation. You're more insidious. You assimilate people. And they don't even know it. Because we view assimilation, Borg assimilation, as a, as a really pernicious form of violence, as a kind of... It's a lot of things at once. It's, we're not talking about the Borg today, but it's, it's, it's rape, and it's also indoctrination, and it's also physical violence of a different kind, and mutilation, all kinds mm-hmm. of things. Um, and to compare the utopian federation to that i mean i remember as a the first time i watched this i reacted very viscerally against it and before i come back to it right now i would love to know how you felt about it in the context of what you just said about being able to coexist (laughs) and be vulnerable to these different ideas when people are upset with other people we can really paint them as the bad guy, even if they're not like we, what we're seeing is our idea of who they are versus who they actually are. So just because someone like lobbies an insult or lobbies an insult at you or, or says you're this thing, you know, you don't just cause that's the reflection you're getting doesn't necessarily make it true. And I think it's, it's murky. It's really, really murky. Like, you know, I think what Michael Eddington is essentially saying is like the is accusing the Federation of is also assimilating people and not letting them have their differences and their autonomy. You know, like the Federation couldn't just let the Maquis be the Maquis, you know, I think is his argument. Um, and the, And to some extent, like I can see that is happening. But Michael Eddington is suddenly saying that is all the Federation is, mm. you know, like they're suddenly all bad versus all good. And that's like a very quote unquote immature way of like viewing the world and viewing people in the world. In psychoanalytic theory, there's this, there's this sub-theory, I guess you could call it, called object relations, which is about the relationships between people and what like what the the function of those relationships and what it serves for an individual is like the very simplified version of like what it is. And in that theory, there's this idea that when you're young, 
the kind of relational position you have is called um, paranoid schizoid, which has nothing to do with schizophrenia, unfortunately. Like, it's unfortunate they use the same word. Um, but that idea is essentially that you are terrified of invasive malevolence that will destroy you. And if you get any sense that that, is, that you're at risk for that, then suddenly the object, the person that you are afraid will do that to you is all bad. They are all bad. They are terrible. There's like, they're just, um, they're all bad. And then the people who love you, they're all good. It's called splitting, you know, essentially. It's, it's, it's a defense mechanism um, where it's like you are, if you hurt me at all, you're terrible. And if you give me what I want, then you're the best thing ever. It's a, it's a, it's a very young, young way of like understanding the world, you know? Um, and then as you get older, you ideally start to move into what's called the depressive position, which again is not about depression. Like I take such issue with like the words and terms of these <laughs> things, but, um, but that essentially is this idea that, oh, I'm not all powerful. Other people are autonomous other individuals that I can't control and have their own thoughts and feelings. And there's nothing I can do about that. I just have to accept that other people are separate from me and can do whatever it is they want. Hmm. Um, and they, and we've called that the depressive position for weird reasons. Um, and I, I just, I am outlining that because to me, Michael Eddington is kind of sitting in this paranoid schizoid position, which is very young, which is slightly immature. You know, you want to grow out of that position where it's just like, oh, the Federation didn't give the Maquis everything they wanted in the treaty. You're awful now. You're terrible. You're worse than the Borg. <laughs> do, you, do you see how suddenly that switches? Yeah, it's petulant, which is something I think that's a word I used to describe uh, the Maquis in our last episode is it's this it feels like teenagers yeah yelling at their parents because you don't get to let me do what I want to do um, which is a shame because it infantilizes the political issue here and there are political issues and that's one of the things that frustrates me about the way these characters always tend to be um, in, in, in these Maquis stories as compared to our first episode in this series where we talked about other non-Maquis terrorists, like remember Finn and Chikar and even yeah. um, uh, the guy from Enterprise, whose name I can't remember, um, and how there's this, uh, when you make it humans in the Star Trek universe, you have to fuck everything up <laughs> to make this work. Um I want to come back to to that um, a little later on once we've once we had a, a fuller look at Michael Eddington, but I think that's really insightful, to, uh, an insightful observation to, to to see this young psychology, this adolescent psychology, kind of emerging in in his character. It's even younger than that. Like ideally, oh. like ch children move out of this by the time they're like four or six. Ideally, you know. Well, you said it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, it's this idea of like, oh, hey, Federation, you could destroy my sense of who I am. You know, again, invasive malevolence. You're going to come in and you're going to destroy me and destroy everything I care about. You're the bad guy. You're awful. You're yep. worse than the Borg. You know, it's this and it's this like, again, paranoid 
position where you have to split things into being all good or all bad as a way to protect yourself. Do you hear the people sing, singing the song of angry men? It is the music of a people who will not be slaves again. When the beating of your heart echoes the beating of the drums, there is a life about to start when tomorrow comes. The follow-up takes us to the fifth season, the 1997 story For the Uniform, written by Peter Allen Fields and directed by Victor Lovell. We establish that Sisko has developed a habit of pursuing Eddington, following up on his promise to see the man court-martialed for his betrayal of Starfleet and himself. But Eddington has remained one step ahead of him. Time after time, Eddington humiliates Ben in his pursuit, all the while insisting Ben is responsible for his own embarrassment. You know what your problem is, Captain? You've made this personal. It didn't have to be. It wasn't with me. I have no animosity, no harsh feelings toward you. I wish I could say the same. Does it really pay to risk yourself, your ship, your crew, on a personal vendetta? He sabotages the Defiant, easily evades capture, and eventually Ben is ordered to hand the hunt for Eddington off to another captain. He takes out his frustration in his usual way by punching things. But he gets his chance to do something besides impotently throw his fists when Eddington ups the ante by poisoning a Cardassian colony in the DMZ. To pad time, I mean because Eddington is a technical genius, the Defiant is to be launched under extremely difficult circumstances, with very little control over major systems. But hey, the guns work, so what the hell. Despite the bravado, it turns out Eddington has remained one step ahead, having again lured Sisko away from where he ought to be and ambushing the other Starfleet pursuit vessel. With options and hopes fading, Sisko ponders a breadcrumb he's been left with, a copy of Les Miserables. Eddington compares me to one of the characters. Inspector Javert, a policeman who relentlessly pursues a man named Valjean, guilty of a trivial offense. And in the end, Javert's own inflexibility destroys him. He commits suicide. Sisko decides to fulfill his role as villain in Eddington's little melodrama by attacking and poisoning a Maki colony, thereby forcing Eddington to sacrifice his own freedom for the cause. Elliot, I really wish that this was an episode that you and I watched together because I was screaming at my TV <laughs> at the end of this episode. Oh. <laughs> I was like, what the actual fuck? Uh -huh. um, and and for, for me, like, you know, we've talked in other episodes about how the first time I watched all, like, this series, I was like, yay, Starfleet. And now that we're rewatching it, I'm like, oh, no, I kind of am really sympathizing with the Maquis now. And I'm, uh -oh. like, noticing that shift, right? <laughs> um you know, like, who says we're supposed to get more conservative as we get older? <laughs> but um, for me, like, I was shocked that Cisco poisoned an entire planet of Federation citizens. And then at the end of the episode, they were like, and those people just switched planets and everything is hunky-dory and I'm fine. And like, this was this was a good ending. And I'm just like, what? Yeah. What? Like, that's... That is no. That, what universe are you in? Yeah, this I, DS9. I got. Gets, I got really upset. DS9 gets dark. Obviously, that's one of its hallmarks, and that that in and of itself is not a problem. Uh, at least episodes like in the pale moonlight, like acknowledge, <laughs> like they end with like this is dark and disturbing, and and you know says something about what these characters are. Whereas at the end of this episode, Dax is like, you know, sometimes I like it when the bad guy wins. Ah ha ha! What a joke. <laughs> 
fade to credits. Uh, <laughs> it's like, um, okay. <laughs> There's just a Yeah, no, I was I was just I was so cringe. I was just cringing in this episode, especially like the last 20 minutes or something. It just was like oh, this, this is not this is not okay. And you're just and you're, the way you're writing the story is making it okay. Ah! Yeah, it's it's a problem. Um, there's there's lots yeah. to say about that. But um, what's interesting is that we have this scene after Cisco's been embarrassed time after time after time, and he's punching the punching bag in the hollow suite with Dax, and obviously very emotionally worked up. He played me all right. And what is my excuse? Is he a changeling? No. Is he a being with seven lifetimes of experience? No. Is he a wormhole alien? No. He's just a man like me. And he beat me. Cisco likes to punch. I don't know if you remember, one of the first things he did in the series is punch Q in the face, famously. You hit me. Picard never hit me. I'm not Picard. Which, I mean, I don't love that depiction of evolved humanity as like, I'm going to punch an omnipotent being because he's annoying me. But, you know, that's, it is an established character trait. So I don't know. Is this, is this a healthy thing to be seeing our captain doing here? Um, I, I personally think punching a punching bag when you're really angry at somebody is a relatively healthy way to get out your aggression. Going again, going back like several episodes when we were talking about just like war and violence and aggression and like, all you know, all these like animalistic tendencies that people have, you know, because we're, you know, we are animals, even if you want to forget that or ignore it or be ignorant of it. For me, I would be more worried if Benjamin like went to a bar and got drunk and picked a fight and like that's where he punched people or Mm. if he punched people all the time so like that's that's not like socially acceptable and is a little and that would be like an unhealthy way of like dealing with his aggression a healthier way is to go to the gym and box it out you know like there that energy is moving and ideally after doing that he feels better and you know or the hope is that after doing that he feels better and like feels less aggressive because he's expressed it in a way that hasn't actually harmed another human being. So that as a way to channel aggression as like going to the gym and punching a punching bag, all for it. You know, the, the worst options are to take it out on other people or repress it because that is like a pressure cooker that will explode eventually. Like mm. you can't hang on to that, you know? Heard. Uh, that's, that's nice to hear. I mean, we all have our animalistic, violent impulses at times, and I, I, I think I agree. Like, I, of course I do. Like, punching a, an object made to be punched is better than a, a face or, or whatever, uh, and doing it in a controlled environment, um, which is why, again, it's interesting to me that he then, his real act of violence, Cisco's, which is this planet poisoning, happens after like a considered moment of calm, relatively speaking, for for Benjamin. But in the best melodramas, the villain creates a situation where the hero is forced to sacrifice himself for the people, for the cause, one final grand gesture. What are you getting at, Benjamin? I think it's time for me to become the villain. Now, on a narrative level, you know, Eddington's been manipulating him taking advantage of his knowledge. I mean, this is an established thing with him. He manipulated Odo in the previous episode um, by, even though he and Odo had this history of, of 
being at odds. Have you ever reminded Starfleet Command that they stationed Eddington here because they didn't trust me? No. Please do. Eddington plays on that and says, Odo, all your weird, you know, police state paranoia is totally right. We should definitely be bugging everyone's phones and chasing after everyone's girlfriends. And yes, 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 you're totally right, dude. And got the, took advantage of Odo that way. He does the same thing with Ben here where he's proving himself to be very adept at manipulating people and understanding their psychologies. So the fact that he betrays this aspect of himself um, to Cisco when he compares them to the characters in Les Miserables um, gives Cisco the opportunity to manipulate him back. So narratively, it is, it functions, right? I think that makes sense to say, here's how we turn the tables. Yeah. But in terms of the implications for Cisco's character, in terms of like really dealing with the political issues here, I'm a little out to sea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little like, wait, you poisoned an entire planet as a strategic move and Starfleet was okay with that? What? No. Yeah, the number of times Benjamin Sisko like violates the rules and does something unethical and then gets like promoted or given is it's pretty funny. I like it when the bad guy wins. Eddington definitely embodies many of the qualities that we had uh, fleshed out of what we see in the Maquis as as people um, in our in our last episode. um, In that he has this really romanticized self-image um, and uh, that is most clearly present right in this co- comparison he makes to himself as Jean Valjean and, and, and Cisco as Javert. And of course, in the Victor Hugo story, the way it's written for the most part is pretty black and white. It's like only on the most technical level is Valjean wrong because he did break the law in stealing that loaf of bread. But otherwise, in every other moral framework, uh, he's the good guy. He's the hero, um, which is like the point and or one of the points. Anyway, um, there's something about that character quality of looking at the world, looking at the real world and real people around you and saying you are uh, you're embodying these really stark black and white moral truths. And by that nature, anything I do is justified. It's ironic that Cisco also plays into it by doing this horrible thing and justifying it because he wins. But it says something to me about Michael um, as a Maquis and finding finding that cause and finding some way to justify his emotional impulses to do what he wants Mm -hmm. to do and finding a political justification that creates a context by which there is like a right answer and a wrong answer and end <laughs> melodrama. Yeah. I, I just want to highlight what you were just saying about black and white, right and wrong. That's splitting. That is mm. making everything good on one side and everything bad on the other. And the real world isn't like that. The world is fucking gray, yeah. you know? So anytime anyone is like in that black and white kind of thinking, that is an indication of a very young defense mechanism. You know, I'm saying young versus primitive versus immature, but like it's kind of all talking about the same thing about like, that's what babies do. Mm -hmm. Babies split the world into all good and all bad. As an adult, you shouldn't be doing that, you know? 
So I just wanted to highlight, there's another, that's another tendency of the paranoid schizoid position. You know, you're terrified that you're going to be annihilated. And in order to protect yourself, everything is all good or all bad. Every, everyone thinks they're the hero of their own story. And this idea about being the hero is something that you find in all kinds of cultures and all kinds of myths. Um, it can be called an archetype, which mm. is like just like a really primitive blueprint of the human psyche. It's just like, it's something we're born with. It's kind of like a human, archetypes are like human psychological instincts. It's something we all are born with. And it's something that comes out in every culture and, and it looks different depending on the person and on the culture, but like we all kind of start with that primordial psychic seed of like, this is an idea. This is like a, this is an energy that can be constellated by some unseen force of gravity that pulls these things together. And we all can feel that and we all can tap into that in some way. And, and so in small doses, you know, like I, I think feeling like the hero can be can give someone a lot of agency as they figure out and try to overcome the challenges in their life. It's when, it's when you start to like, let that kind of archetypal energy overtake you and suddenly you are no longer Elliot or Elizabeth or Michael Eddington. You have just completely merged with this idea of being the hero um, you know, or like a savior, like the savior complex, you know, like when you're like, I'm going to save everybody. That's another example of just kind of being inflated by this archetypal energy and this idea that that's when it gets problematic. What is it that bothers you more? The fact that I left Starfleet to fight for a higher cause or the fact that it happened on your watch? You didn't leave Starfleet. If you had, I wouldn't be here. You betrayed Starfleet. You used your position as security chief to feed the Marquis information about us. And at the same time, you misled us with false information about them. There is a word for that. You know, Michael Eddington is kind of like a moth to a flame. He like saw this idea about being this hero of having the kind of narrative in life that he that made him feel important. And he went to that and he lost himself in it. And now all he is, is this flaming moth that thinks he's the hero of the story. You remember um, in the high ground how um, the police officer, whose name I can't remember. Believe it or not, I always considered myself moderate. But changed your mind. <sighs> Being stationed here for six months, watching the body count grow. Despite the fact that oh, yeah. she's enforcing a police state and how she's radicalized into these positions by the violence. Um, whereas, and you, we can see this sort of, the, 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 the interplay of like causality happening here. Whereas the Maquis have like a, there's a genuine political issue in which is why there's a treaty, but what is motivating these people to action isn't, really about politics it's just like grievance it's just like i want yeah. my farmland i want my i want my plants i want my planet and it's not fair that you don't give it to me so i'm going to take your weapons i'm going to take your replicators i'm going to take your medical supplies and do whatever i want and if you reprimand me for that if you try to arrest me or say you can't have that i'm going to call you a fascist or whatever you know it's like or the Borg, and it's 
it's so like you know you to the point where to keep the Maquis feeling sympathetic in this episode, Cisco poisons a fucking planet just to tip the scale back enough that we that you, as you point out, feel sympathy again for the Maquis because it's like, wow, yeah, that's insane, Ben. What the hell is wrong with you? Um, yeah. It's it's frustrating to me because it 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 it, it makes this really murky, um, and. Not, not in a good way. Not gray as the world is, just like watered down and dishonest um, mm. depiction of what, what really causes people to join terrorist cells, what motivates people to what they consider to be justified violence. Because that's an important thing to talk about because it's very much um, part of our world. Will you join in our crusade? Who will be strong and stand with me? Beyond the barricade, is there a world you long to see? Then join in the fight that'll give you the right to be free. Do you hear the people sing? The Michael Eddington story draws to a close later in the same season with Blaze of Glory, written by Robert Hewitt Wolfe and Iris Evan Bear and directed by Kim Friedman. In the wake of the Maquis having been wiped out, we'll come back to it, Martok intercepts a surprising message suggesting that the few who remain alive and free are planning a last-ditch assault that could have devastating consequences for the entire Alpha Quadrant. With few options at his disposal, Sisko pays Eddington a visit in his prison cell. He's become decidedly resigned, with his entire cause all but destroyed. Although he initially fails to cajole Michael into helping him, Sisko drags him along on a runabout in an attempt to track down the Maquis missiles before they reach their target. They spar over philosophies and who's to blame for this mess. Eddington settles on his resigned death wish, but Sisko calls his bluff, maneuvering the runabout into the path of Jem'Hadar patrols in the Badlands. Let's get one thing straight, Captain. I'll get you to the launch site and I'll help you deactivate those missiles. But then you and I are going to have it out, once and for all. You want to fight, mister? I will give you one. I don't intend to fight you, Captain. I intend to kill you. Sisko is proven correct, but the gamble requires the dangerous little tech-tech trick that ends up getting his ass kicked by space turbulence. Meanwhile, on DS9, Nog wants to earn the stationed Klingon's officer's respect, and he does, I guess. So, uh, cool story, bro. Finally, Eddington lands the runabout at the Maquis launch site, and he and Sisko make their way to the base, where they find a pair of Jem'Hadar soldiers. Sisko attacks them with a pipe because he's Sisko. What else would you expect? This mini-victory achieved, we discover the truth behind the launch site. There are no missiles, but there is a group of Maquis, most of them dead. However, there is a small band of survivors, including Michael's wife, Rebecca. The plan was always to recover these people, using the missile story as cover. With more Jem'Hadar attacking, the group are forced to make a run for it, and Michael sacrifices himself to help the rest reach the ship and escape. Sisko and Dax later eulogize Eddington in private. If you ask me... Eddington couldn't have picked a better way to go, at least from his point of view. He was a romantic, and what is more romantic than a glorious death in defense of a lost cause? He died fighting for what he believed in. I called him a traitor once, but in a way he was the most loyal man I ever met. He was a marquee, right up to the bitter end. First thing I'll mention is, Again, going back to our episode when we looked at Shakar and we complained, I complained, whatever, <laughs> we both complained that there was that little B story with O'Brien playing darts and how like 
how annoying it was. Not that the story was bad. It was just like, there is so much to get through in this episode and we're wasting time on this. Here we have a little B story with Nog um, learning to stand up for himself. And I think it actually works um, in this story just because the A story with Michael and Cisco is the right proportion of like, I don't feel like we're missing anything uh, in, in this wrap up with the two of them. So there's time for this other side plot and it, it feels very cohesive in a way that I wish Shakar had felt. So I just want to give kudos to the writers in that respect of figuring that balance out a little better. Yeah, I I also appreciated the Nog story, you know, just in and of itself and as the development of Nog, who I think I actually I really like Nog as a character, especially as like the season progresses and where he goes. I'm like, go Nog. Um, But I also, you know, that B story has a similar theme that I think is also present in the whole Michael Eddington Maquis dynamic, which is something I like when like the B story and the A story are dealing with similar issues in different ways. Mm -hmm. And what I think that theme is, is the distraction of like the victim persecutor narrative hiding the nature of circular causality. Like there's the idea that you do something and I'm a victim of that you know, in this like kind of bi-directional or one directional that's an alternated kind of dynamic or reciprocity that happens. Like how a lot of us think that that's the way the world works, but it's actually much more complex and, and circular causality is much, is a much truer depiction of like how things work. So t- say take Nog and the Klingons. The Klingons completely dismissed Nog as long as he let them dismiss him, you know, as, until he stood up for them. And when Nog stood up to them, the way they responded to him changed. You are either very brave or very stupid, Parangi. Probably a little of both. <laughs> Courage comes in all sizes, but don't tempt fate. And so it's not so much that the Klingons, like, you know, roared at Nog, you know, and that was like the only thing that would ever happen. But it was the way Nog reacted to them changed the way they for reacted to him. And so it had this kind of mutual reciprocity that was happening. Like what I do impacts how you respond to me and how you respond to what I have done, you know, also like affects how I respond to you again in turn. So it actually, it goes back and forth in a circular pattern versus just being like, you do something to me and I'm powerless about it. And there's nothing I did or could have done that would have changed or affected what you did to me. And now I'm going to like retaliate against you and assume that what I do has no impact on you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know? And, and I think that's also happening with the Maquis. You know, the Maquis are like, Federation people, leave us alone. You know, but then how can the Federation do that if the Maquis is stealing their weapons and attacking them? <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> right, right. So there's this idea of like, no, like you guys are affecting each other. It's not just one, it's not this, um, it, it, it's like this doer or done to. Like I am doing this thing to you and is the doer and the done to is you did this to me. You know, that's, that's, I think, 
the way it can feel like relationships and events happen to us, we feel like things happen to us and we're, and there's nothing we can do about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that is true, but more often than not, like our actions and reactions have an effect on each other. Like say you're in a room with a dog and you drop something on the ground that makes a really, really loud noise. The dog can react in a bunch of different ways. It could, you know, be scared. It could start barking. It could attack the box. It could attack you. You know, there's a lot of variables at play for what will happen after you drop that big loud box. Mm -hmm. And then depending on what the dog does will affect your reaction. If the dog is scared, you might try to reassure it. If the dog starts barking, you might try to shut it up. If the dog attacks the box, you might think that's funny and put it on YouTube. (laughs) If the dog attacks you, you're going to kick it, you know, or you Mm. could kick it, you know. And if you kick the dog, the dog is going to do something to you. So do you see how it keeps going back and forth? Like, it's influencing each other. It's a chain reaction. Yeah, Uh, Yeah. definitely. Um, And I think that's an astute observation the connection there between what's happening with Nog and the Klingons and and the Maquis and the Federation. Um, I think that's good. And I I really do like the conversation between Michael and Sisko in the run about it. Certainly is a more um, heroic depiction of Sisko than in the previous episode, um, where he has some moral and philosophical and political consistency in what he's talking about, because as you say, Michael is putting the blame for the Maki's actions, and f- not only the actions, Maki's actions, but the Maki's failure um, at the Federation's feet. Michael Eddington gets to take off his gold uniform and play hero. That's what you always wanted, to lead troops in a glorious cause. Well, you had your chance. And look where you led them, right into their graves. They died because I wasn't there when they needed me most because you put me in jail. They died because you filled their heads with false hopes, sold them dreams of a military victory when what they needed was a negotiated peace. We had the Cardassians on the run. And they ran right into the arms of the Dominion. If, if going back to this this lack of maturity, which underpins most of what the Maquis do, and Michael specifically, um, it's this sense of like, well, I didn't get everything I wanted, so I am justified in doing whatever I want. And Sisko is like, yeah, so you put these ridiculous childish ideas in these people's heads and it got them all fucking killed. Like, that's the consequence of, of your actions. And one, it's just nice to see Sisko finally sort of responding to that attitude. But it's also, I think it confirms what you're saying about how when you respond to a stimulus, you are creating a stimulus. You are yeah. impacting the world around you by your response. And so simply reacting the way a dog in the room would, which the dog doesn't have consciousness, so it's just going to react the way it reacts. The, do- the dog is, c- no, the dog is conscious. It doesn't have an ego. Thank you. I'm, thank you for correcting my terms. You'll, you'll learn. You're learning. You're learning. <laughs> I forgot. No, the dog, so the dog doesn't have an ego and therefore is simply reacting as opposed to considering what his actions could be. The dog is yes. simply punching the punching bag without saying, um, is this something that is okay to punch or am I just punching someone in the face? It's not thinking about it. Yeah. Um, and that's a lot of how the, how the Maquis operate. That's the Maquis way too, isn't it? There's a bit of a bait and switch in this episode, which I think works really well. And the th- reason I think it works really well is because the bait um, is very, very plausible and... Um, 
lines up with our expectations about human nature in that, you know, the Maquis have been destroyed. And we're going to talk about that next time, um, that event and the impact of that. Um, but the Maquis have been destroyed. So Michael, withering away in jail, now has lost his cause, right? The cause is completely futile. And seemingly what's going to happen is those who are left are left with simply uh, revenge. And we talked uh, in our episode preceding our Maki arc about um, vengeance and the motivation behind that and about how letting yourself be indulge your anger is really what that's about, whereas you can frame it as a justice issue and it's not. Um, and, and, and that, to me, is why this is so plausible, is the Maquis have been framing their emotional reactions as a justice issue, as mm-hmm. we deserve, we are owed this piece of justice, or now that we can't have that, um, what's left is revenge. And it feels very yeah. like, yeah, of course they would do that. They, they, they don't hesitate in believing that this is something these people would do. What it turns out to be is... Um, Actually, that Michael, the, the, the thing that's left for him is the promise of this relationship. And he's certainly become nihilistic, relatively speaking, compared to his Valjean um, stand-in um, sort of part of the story. But he does have something I think we would both argue is a more positive way to channel that energy into this relationship with Rebecca and these, these other survivors than, you know, blowing up Cardassia or whatever they were planning, thinking they were, they were going to do with these missiles. You know, Edding, Eddington is a master manipulator. He has been in his entire character arc and run, like getting people to do what he wants them to do to achieve his own means and knowing how to pull the strings to get them to act in a certain way. Yeah. I'm really glad that there weren't actually missiles going to destroy all of Cardassia. Like that, that is, and that sounds so dark to say. I'm like, I'm glad you didn't actually plan on committing mass murder. Like, good. (laughs) Wow. These are really high standards. Um, But like you say, he's playing into, by making that threat, he's playing into the Maquis perceived reputation, Mm -hmm. you know, and also like what, what, how we expect people who have been hurt to retaliate and, and react. You know, I, I kind of think about it again, like we, when we talked about our aggression and, you know, and war and anger episode, um, a few, a few episodes back, there's this sense of like, okay, you've hurt me. And to balance the moral scales of the universe, I have to hurt you. You know, like that's, that's a very, animalistic impulse that we have, you know, um, I'm trying to use that word versus primitive, um, because that, that word just is too loaded, but it, it's this, it's just this like really animalistic psychological framework that exists in us that we have to be wary of. Like we have to know it's there. And then yeah. again, not respond versus react when that comes up in us. It's almost like a, a game of hot potato to me, you know, like, the Dominion have now destroyed, the Dominion destroyed the Maquis and the Maquis is now holding this hot potato of, we have been, you know, the people that are left, we have been annihilated. I don't want to hold this. I'm going to throw this at somebody else so that I don't have to feel it. 
so that I am no longer holding the identity, the, um, the hot potato, the identity of I have been destroyed. Yeah. I'm like, I can't, I don't want to hold this. I don't want to have this energy. I don't want to have this identity. I'm going to throw it at somebody else and destroy them. So thinking that that will rid me of all this uncomfortable reality that I don't want to face. Like, that's what we think we do when we're, when we basically like this happened to me and now I'm going to do it to you thinking that I, this means I will be rid of it. Yeah. You know, if I give it to you. Whereas as we talked about a few minutes ago, what's what really going to happen is that potato's going to get thrown at someone else. Um, yeah. And so there's something redemptive then at the very end of the story where Michael decides to sacrifice himself so that Cisco and the others can get out in that essentially not to abuse the metaphor too much, but he holds the potato till it explodes. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. he, it kills him. I mean, yeah. you know, he gets, he gets shot to death by the, by the Jem'Hadar, but everything that's been fed into this, the, 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 the heat, <laughs> right? The, 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 the thing that, which makes the hot potato something you want to get rid of is, is the pain and the, and the, and the yeah. fire. And the, so the pain of the treaty initially, and then that leading to the pain of the betrayal and the conflict between him and Ben and between the Maquis and Starfleet and between the Maquis and the Cardassians. And then the retribution of the Cardassians allying with the Dominion, the Dominion destroying the Maquis. All of that is being tossed around, as you say. And finally, he says, you know what? It's going to die with me. That's his yeah. choice. And in our own lives, I think we can not necessarily have to literally die. <laughs> to make that happen but we can decide at a certain point i'm going to hold on to this until it cools down and then put it away yeah and it's going to hurt I, right it's a hot potato it's going to hurt it's going to burn my hands but i'm not going to throw it at anybody else yeah like i think that's that's what we try to do we try to break the cycle because otherwise it just keeps volleying back and forth and it never changes you know like that's and I, that's a lot of what I think like psychological healing work is, is the transmutation of pain so that you don't throw it at somebody else. In For the Cause, there's this little scene while the Defiant is waiting to catch Cassidy in the act, so to speak. Um, and this is before, obviously, Michael has revealed his self as a, uh, as, as, a as a Maquis. And he and O'Brien and Worf are on the Bridge of the Defiant um, and just sort of discussing as they wait this issue. And O'Brien, <laughs> O'Brien is like, Look at what's happened to those people. One day they're eking out a living in some godforsaken colonies in the Cardassian border. The next day, the Federation makes a treaty handing those colonies over to the Cardassians. What would you do? I would not become a terrorist. It would be dishonorable. You know, he says Worf stuff. And Michael's there being like, I'm just here to do my job. You know, obviously he has a vested opinion. <laughs> it's, it'd be interesting to know with whom he identifies, actually, in the two here. What I um, hate <laughs> about the scene um, is at the core of... The, the, the issue here with, with the Maquis and the way they're, they're dealt with in, in, in the story on a philosophical level, which is that the argument that O'Brien and Worf are having is not the argument. It is a yeah. complete deflection of, of what the issue is of why the Maquis are happening. It's like, yeah, you can feel sorry for them 
but in terms of them feeling but it but feeling sorry for them doesn't say yes and it was right for them to do this regardless of whether or not it's against the law i don't care personally it's not about the law it's about the fact that it is an, an asymmetrical response to the issues that they should mm. that they in universe should be having they're not starving they're not being oppressed they're just being told you need to move a little bit and get a bunch of free food and, and, and housing and everything like you get in the Federation because the alternative is that everyone's going to die. <laughs> you know what I mean? That is the argument. Yeah. And to frame it otherwise is really dishonest and it frustrates me. But it is also the reason why in our last episode, you know, we talked about the Maquis and Voyager, why that, is, why that concept of the Maquis just fizzled away. What are you going to do with that when, when, it's, when there's not this... Um, this immediate political issue to sort of distract you <laughs> of, of people smuggling yeah. goods and whatnot. I, I agree with you that the way the Maquis argument is framed is simplistic, you know, and, you know, is a little bit of a straw man argument and also just doesn't, doesn't really address the real reasons why people would do this. And, you know, I also think about, okay, if someone, you know, um, you know, I live in California um, if the city came to me and said, you have to move, you know, um, a hundred miles away, you know, um, and cause otherwise like, you know, children are going to starve or whatever it is. I'm still going to be mad. Like every, you know, every bit of the life that I've built here, um, I would lose, I would lose my community. I would lose my work. You know, I would be mad, you know, and yes, like, I could rebuild my life somewhere else, but that doesn't mean I'm not losing something that's really important to me and mm-hmm. that I would miss, you know, and that I would feel the loss of and the, and the alternative life I would have had if I hadn't been forced to relocate or evacuate, you know, I think so. So for me, it's a yes. And yes. And I do think there are some legitimate concerns even in this like sim- simplistic framing of the Maki, mm-hmm. you know, like it, that if I was really in that position, I would, I think I would also be angry, you know, and mad and upset and feel like I'm losing f- so other people can be happy, you know? And I'm like, that's what about my, what about what matters to me? Yeah. Well, I think I, I agree with you. I would also, I would feel similarly, maybe even more angry. And I, in that respect, empathizing with, their anger and their and their and the loss that they have is absolutely understandable and relatable and i think a a worthwhile thing to explore in this universe but again is it okay are you angry and you go punch a punching bag or are you angry and you go poison the planet what do you do with that (laughs) emotion yeah Yeah. and and it to me it, it 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 connects to what you have been talking about on and off in this whole episode about You've you've just you've used different words, and I think you've settled on animalistic. But I think the more uh, the more correct or more useful term is the childish um, sort of psychology of this, of saying, "Well, I have this feeling, and I have to make sure that other people feel it because it's not fair that only I feel this way." Yeah, that that is is, very childish. It's childish, and it's emotionally indulgent. And what's what's sad to me is 
given the fact that terrorism as, a, as an idea is such a complicated topic, that what ends up happening, I would say unintentionally, but what ends up happening in, in a character like Michael Eddington is that we reduce um, the entire cause of this activity to an emotional indulgence. And it makes the Maquis seem really petty, really petulant. Mm-hmm. And in the end, despite the fact that I otherwise would have empathized with with these people, with these people in the DMZ at least, um, who are paying some of the uh, heavier costs for this treaty than other people in the Federation. I don't feel that. I feel annoyed, <laughs> I, you know, and it's like, wow, what a, what, what a, what a turnaround. Um, and it's exactly what Cisco says in Blaze of Glory. It's like, you sold these people on the dream that one day they could go back to those farms and schools and homes, but you know they never can. And the longer you keep that hope alive, the longer these people will suffer. They die because you filled their heads with false hopes. I think it's one of the more difficult realities that we accept as we get older um, is, you know, you can't always get what you want. You know, you're not entitled to have every single one of your needs or wants or desires met. You know, you're not you can strive for it, you know, but like the sense of entitlement and punishing other people when they don't give you what you want like that, that is problematic. Yeah. So in the end, I think Michael Eddington is the perfect archetype of, of a Maquis. And he has this incredibly romanticized self depiction, um, you know, comparing himself to these melodramatic characters in, in, in fiction and reducing the people around him and himself to a degree to these black and white caricatures of, of, of what they really are. Um, he has an emotional immaturity where he indulges his most react, reactive impulses and, you know, ha- has just a lack of perspective. Um, mm. and, and to me, those are all the components. If we think about this in terms of how it intersects with the real world, trying to be generous here, um, taking aside any value judgments we might have about individual terrorist cells or real world terrorist activity, just setting that all aside. Um, I think you brought this up briefly in one of our episodes about the recruitment and the psychological type that is uh, vulnerable, you you might say, to recruitment, to uh, uh, something like terrorism. I think Michael Eddington serves as a cautionary tale of, you know, he here he is, this guy who seems to be doing his job. People don't enter Starfleet to become commanders, or admirals for that matter. It's the captain's chair that everyone has their eye on. That's what I wanted when I joined up. You don't get to be a captain wearing a gold uniform. You have that kind of psychological um, self-pitying. Um, mm. We've talked a little bit about people like incels, Things like that, where you're stuck in a community that emphasizes its own lack of self-worth. And that makes you vulnerable to recruitment and these kinds of activities. 
yeah, self-worth and lack of agency. And that's that doer done to dynamic mm. that people think is true, but it, and that ignores their own participation in what's happening. Will you give all you can give so that a banner may advance? Some will fall and some will live. Will you stand up and take your chance? The blood of the martyrs will water the meadows of Michael Eddington, I'm reminded of what we've talked about as like a psychological example of health, which is being able to choose and have access to the full range of human experience. You know, um, you can also think of like a piano keyboard, like psych psychological health is being able to play all the keys. Um, whereas if you are psychologically dysfunctional or unhealthy, you have a limited range of like what's available to you. You can only play certain keys. Like maybe you can't, and you, some things are just out of range for you, out of access or, and you lack the full, you lack complexity because mm. of that. You become this not fully fleshed out person you know, or you have the risk of that, you know. And so one idea of psychological health is moving toward being able to have more access to everything that you are and everything that you could be. Hey, look, I got our subtitle in there. <laughs> um, and I, and I think about that with Michael Eddington as like, you know, he, he doesn't have full access to himself. Yeah. He's this kind of caricature version of, the role he has decided to play and maybe more so than anything else about his values or his manipulation or the way in which he has conceptualized himself. To me, maybe that's the biggest takeaway of realizing why that character, you know, doesn't quite work in that, Oh, he, he can only be certain things. And w why, has he constrained himself in that in that way and to what end and what else would be possible if he could be more than that also there's something here that I, despite the fact that i agree with you there's some, there's a, there's a lot of frustrating aspects of michael eddington in terms of the way he's written um yeah. but you know a lot of times star trek is accused especially of this era um the tng era of being naively utopian because people don't have money and they don't um uh, you know the, the war is gone poverty is gone the disease all that stuff that's that's like the tagline and without even indulging in the continuity errors <laughs> that are supposed to justify the, the the maquis existence here with them needing to farm and whatnot um the fact that michael is psychologically unfulfilled is a, I think, a realistic aspect of what it might be like to live in the Federation in that, you know, mm. it is still possible for you to have, like, strife and conflict and need need counseling, need to find a, a new way of being, need to find a new job, need to, like, discover yourself. Like, there is still a whole breadth of room for um, growth and conflict, even in a society that has eliminated, like, material wants. 
And I think that's yeah. important because a lot of times people accuse that system, that economic system of destroying human motivation, which is such a lie. <laughs> like we don't need to be starving or at risk of starving to motivate ourselves to do things. <laughs> and, yeah. and Michael Eddington is a perfect example of that. If he had found, before he found Rebecca, his wife, if he had found a way to channel his psychological need to do something besides be in his gold uniform, who knows what he could have done? He's obviously very intelligent and has an insight into the psychology of other people. Like he could have been a really fantastic therapist if he had made different choices in his life, right? Oh, that why am I terrified by that thought? But okay. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> Uh, next time, Elizabeth, we're going to wrap up our look at the Maquis and talk about the, the fallout, um, sort of the okay. after effects of they're gone now and what does that mean? Um, and we're going to look at a couple of Voyager episodes and one episode of the most recent season of Picard, which is, um, it's pretty good, which is surprising. What? <laughs> oh, thank God. I know. Thank God. I'm glad that got redeemed. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking forward to uh, looking at those episodes with you and wrapping up our, our look at the Maquis. But uh, thank you, as always, for your incredible insight. Thank you to our listeners and patrons. Please like, subscribe, comment, rate, review. All of that stuff is very helpful. Um, share. Share with your friends. Yes. Thank you. Um, anyway, Elizabeth, I will see you next time. See you next time. You can completely cut that. That has no relevance to anything. <laughs> no, I'm just like, you know, I'm just like, I don't know why I said that. Um...